We're in Mark chapter 9. We continue this series that we're studying. Next week, we'll continue in Mark 9, and then we launch into a new series that's sort of an interim series starting in February. But right now, we are in this book of Mark, working through this study, learning about Jesus. And our, our series title for this is The Path to Something Better. Now, it's The Path to Something Better, part two, because this is a continuation of what we were doing a month and a half ago. And I want to talk about something this morning that sometimes is is a little bit difficult to talk about in a church context, but it's where the text takes us this morning. We're going to look at a particularly difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. But let me just start off this way. Let me start off by asking if any of you have ever spent time praying for the healing of a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent, a close friend, Have you ever found yourself spending hours or days or weeks doing what could really only be described as wrestling with God over that situation? Do you remember, or maybe you're in it now, the anguish, the fear, the wrestling, the discouragement, and the doubt that can come in those times? The soul-piercing doubt over the things that are at the core of what we believe. Those are the times when our faith is most vulnerable to deception, to distraction. Last week we talked about doubt, and I showed you how doubt was this theming thread throughout the last couple of chapters of Mark. Jesus was dealing with his disciples, and last week we talked about the fact that we need to use the, the times that we're in now, whether it's a time of calm and stability, whether it's a time where we have a great relationship with God, things are going well, those are the times that we need to use to be preparing for tough times ahead, to be preparing for times when we will struggle with doubt ahead. And we said that when it comes to doubt, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You sort of got it there. Yes. <laughs> worth a pound of cure. And if you don't know what that means, it means that it is better to prepare for something now than to wait until a challenge happens and then try to solve it after it comes. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. When it comes to doubt, it's better for us to prepare. And what happens in our lives as human beings is we get into a time where things are going well and we start to slack off, don't we? We become complacent in our relationship with God. And really what we need to be doing is using that time to build foundations for the storms ahead. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples leading up to this moment was building experiences and evidence and a foundation that would give them confidence later on. And we know we saw last week that Peter wrote about that time and said, because we experienced that, because we saw that, we now have confidence. We need to be preparing for those times. But here's the thing. Probably some of you last week were listening to all of that and thinking, boy, that's fantastic, but I'm in the storm now. That's a great idea. Plan now for the doubts ahead. Build your foundation when things are going well. Things aren't going so well. And I'm wrestling with doubt right now. I'm wrestling with discouragement right now. I am having my faith tested right now. What do I do when I'm in the middle of the storm, not just to prepare for it? And maybe that's not you right now. And maybe you need to just log this away for later. But if that is you, that's what this message is all about. Last week was preparing for the doubts ahead. This week is dealing with the doubts that are right now. And I'm just curious. You don't have to respond to me if you don't want to, but I'm just... Just curious, how many of you would be brave enough to say, you know what, and just raise your hand. I am struggling with something like that right now. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling with discouragement. I'm wrestling with something right now. 
Yeah, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can raise your hand. I kind of want you to be able to see that you're not the only one. We talked last week about how we all struggle with this at different points in our lives. It's a part of being human. None of us have arrived yet. And I have this concern for the church that I want to share with you. My concern for the church is that I hope we never get to the point where church is like this club for all the people that have it all figured out. Where church is this place where all the people who know the right clothes to wear and know the right words to say and know the right things to do and get here on time, we don't always have to worry about that one. I never want to become the church where it's just a club for the people to have it all figured out. That's not what we are. We've been studying through the book of Mark, and back in Mark chapter 2, there are some really pious religious men that come to Jesus, and they see that he's having dinner with some people that he really shouldn't be having dinner with, if you know what I mean. And they literally say, why does he eat with such scum? Jesus said this. I'm going to put it on the screen. Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but this is so important, those who know they are sinners. I have come not for the righteous, but for those who know they are sinners. And I hope we never get to the point where we think that church is a club for people that have it all figured out because the truth is those people that think they have it all figured out, they're a bunch of liars. Because the Bible says that no one has it all figured out. You, me, everybody, we are all messed up and the church is not a place for perfect people. The church is a place for messed up people and that's who Jesus came and said he came here to save and invest in their lives and that's what we should be about as a church. So I'm thankful for those of you that were willing to just raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with some stuff right now. This is a place that you should feel welcome. This is a place where God wants you so that you can wrestle with those things with a community of believers in God who love you and who want to encourage you and teach you from his word. Another way of putting it is this. We're not here to revel in how good we are. We're here to be diagnosed. The church is not a country club. It's a hospital. It's a place for a bunch of messed up people who are struggling with stuff to come together and say, open up the word of God and show us how we can be diagnosed, how we can grow past whatever the struggle is that we're dealing with, whatever issue that we're wrestling with right now, whatever doubt is manifest in our life right now. Hebrews 4.12 puts it this way, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And if you're here this morning and you are wrestling with doubt and discouragement. I'm so glad you're here. This is exactly the place you need to be. You are welcome here. We want you here. God wants you here. And we are going to look at a story this morning about a man who struggled in a big way with doubt. A very challenging passage to interpret and to study. So if you're in Mark chapter 9, We're going to read through that together. Before we do, would you just bow your heads with me as we talk to God and ask him for his blessing? Lord, we are so thankful for your word and for what it teaches us. And God, there are so many times that we struggle, we wrestle with things, we we have our faith tested. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, first of all, that it would glorify you as we study your word, that this would be just as praising to you as what we were singing a moment ago, that you would be honored 
as we try to learn from you. And then, Holy Spirit, would you teach us and guide us into all truth? Would you show us what we need to learn today, what we need to take away from your word, how we need to be diagnosed so that we can grow in you? And we will, of course, praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're in Mark chapter nine, we're gonna read through this chapter together or just a passage of it, verses 14 through 29. And then we're gonna come back And we're going to study it together. We're going to analyze it together. We're going to pick out some things that we can learn from this. So Mark chapter 9, read along with me, starting in verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, I'm just going to stop there and point out this they here, so you have some context. This is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. We studied this last week. They're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, it was called, where Jesus was transformed into his glory. When they returned to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. Who are these guys? Well, these teachers of religious law were also called scribes. So these scribes were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they could not do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people. Really, the word that he uses here is generation. You faithless generation. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Help us if you can. What do you mean, If I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. We didn't see that earlier, but this boy could not speak or hear. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. So let's unpack this text together. Let's go back and see how we can interpret this story. Because I think that the experience of this father with his sort of believing, sort of doubting is all too familiar for us. I think most of us, or maybe all of us, have wrestled with those same types of thoughts. In fact, some of you have told me this week, more than one, it's like that verse in Mark 9, I do believe, but help my unbelief. It's like that was written just for me. That describes my Christian life, some people have said. 
So let's talk about that. How are we to take this and and learn about it and apply it to our lives? Go back to verse 14 with me. Verse 14. And we're going to work through this together. First of all, when they return. Now, if you were here with us last week, you remember that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain, probably Mount Hermon, where he revealed his glory to them. Matthew says that his face was as bright as the sun. Just amazing, the glory. His clothes, Mark says, were whiter than any bleach, any launderer could ever get them. And so he temporarily revealed his glory to these guys. And then Moses and Elijah came down on this mountain and they validated Jesus, what he was saying, who he was. God spoke from a cloud and said, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. In other words, in in days past, you listened to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, but now listen to my son. He speaks for me. He gives revelation about me. And Peter, James, and John have just gone through this incredible experience. They're walking down the mountain with Jesus to return to the other disciples. And as they're making their way down, Jesus says to them, you know that amazing, life-changing, incredible thing that you just saw, like a -a once-in-your-lifetime experience? Yeah, don't tell anybody about that until I come back from the dead. Now think about that from these guys' perspective. See, we read back through our 2,000 years kind of knowledge and we know what Jesus did and we know what happened after that. A lot of us, maybe, maybe not you if you're not used to church and that's okay, but we kind of tend to have this idea of, okay, well, they, they understood what that meant. They had no idea what that meant. That'd be like me coming to you and sharing a secret with you and saying, hey, don't tell anybody till after I die and come back to life. What would you think about that? You'd think I'm crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And that's what these guys were thinking. But Mark says that they wrestled with this. They often ask themselves, he says, what did he mean by saying he would rise from the dead? And we can't even tell anybody about this until that happens. Was that a metaphor? What did that mean? So here these three guys are. They're confused. They're wondering. They just had this crazy experience. And now they come down to find a crowd of people around the other disciples. I just want you to get that frame of reference here. There's a large crowd surrounding the other disciples. And here's what's going on here. I'm going I'm to do some super duper fancy graphics here. Uh, these are the disciples. Okay. And then you've got these guys over here. I mentioned it earlier. They're called the scribes. These are teachers of the religious law, experts in the religious law. So you've kind of got these two groups of people and they're arguing with each other. And then you have this big group around them called the crowd. And here's what happens. Jesus comes down with his three buddies. Whoops, got too close to the end. There we go. Comes down with his three buddies. And here's what happens. This crowd, Mark says, when they saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe. In other words, they, they saw a celebrity. And they, they went over to Jesus, leaving the disciples and the scribes over here. Now, what this made me think of when I was reading and studying this passage, a couple of times I've been to China, I've hiked through these remote mountain villages with tribal peoples that uh, they're, they're not like um, other Chinese people. They're not like Han Chinese people. Uh, these are, if, if you want to know the people group, it's the Butuanosui people. These are, these are peoples that in some cases in these villages, they have never seen a person with white skin in person before. And uh, it was really neat. It was a great experience. We got to walk through and share with them and, and stay in their homes and try to get to know them. And in many cases, I actually knew more Mandarin Chinese than they did, which was really interesting to try to experience that language barrier. We had to learn how to communicate with them. Uh, one of the words that we learned in the E language was that when we were going to greet them, here's how we greeted them. We would say, Nushuntivava. 
And they would respond, I can't do it justice. It's a really guttural sound. I can't even do it. But they would respond with, and literally what that meant was, how's your body? And they would respond with, my body's good. And we're like, okay, that's great. That's great. Now we can be friends and get to know each other. But some of these villages, when we would walk into them, uh, many of them had never seen someone with white skin before, but they had satellite TV and they had state-controlled television. And while we were there, one of the things on TV was the 1992 Olympic basketball team, the dream team. All right, anybody remember the dream team? Okay, the dream team with Michael Jordan and Carl Malone and Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing and Larry Bird. This amazing team, the greatest basketball team ever assembled. And uh, at least, I mean, I know LeBron James doesn't think so, but um, it was at the time the greatest basketball team ever assembled. And, and they went over and they just kicked everybody in the Olympics. It was absolutely amazing. So when we walked into these villages, that's these these people's frame of reference. And sometimes in some of these villages, you would have dozens of kids just flock around to us like a celebrity. And we thought it was pretty cool until they started saying, basketball, basketball. And we realized, ah, they think I'm Patrick Ewing. Of course. (laughs) So they sort of just flocked around us. And that's what what I think of when I see this crowd in my mind's eye who's all around the disciples and the scribes and they're arguing. And all of a sudden they see Jesus and they go, Jesus, Jesus. And they flock over to him like a celebrity. But here's what's interesting about that. And here's why I drew this on here. Jesus doesn't address the crowd. He talks about the arguing. He addresses the arguers. I I think this is so interesting. So Jesus says, what is all this arguing about? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. I want you for a moment to just put yourself into the shoes of this father who clearly loves his little boy. Think back many years to when he was born. He and his wife so happy. They have a son, excited. He starts to grow up and as a little tyke does all the things little boys do, you know, eat, sleep, poop, repeat, that whole thing. And they go through that process and he starts to grow older and get bigger. And, and then all of a sudden they start to notice some things that are a little unusual. The, the boy's not talking like he should. In fact, it doesn't seem like he can really hear them either. And then all of a sudden, something really scary happens. They were out playing, and suddenly the boy just drops to the ground, and he's shaking. He's got an epileptic seizure. And they're going, is there something wrong with our boy? Is there something, what, what is happening here? It's, it's just, it's torment for a, a parent to go through that seeing their, their child in trouble like that. And you might think it's just a medical condition. You might think it's something that, okay, he's got some condition or something. But then one day, they're at the Jordan River, and all of a sudden, this kid just jumps into the river. Now, he's a toddler. He can't swim. He can't save himself. He jumped in almost like he was committing suicide. And the parents have to lunge in after him and, and pull him out of the water. And they're going, what is happening with our son, this little boy that we love? And then they're outside one night, warming up around a campfire. And suddenly this little boy just gets up and lunges into the fire to burn himself. And his parents and everybody else have to rush in there and, and pull him out, kicking and screaming, drag him out of the fire. And they're going, what is wrong with this boy? And finally, someone says, you know, maybe... He's possessed by a demon. And parents, don't tell me at one time you did not think that about your child. (laughs) I've been there. I get it. But this was for real. This was not just a medical condition. This was demon possession that was manifesting as a medical condition. And sometimes that's how Satan and his demons work. 
is they, they work in ways where it kind of looks like it's a normal thing going on, but there's more happening here. This kid is trying to kill himself, and we'll see more about that as the story continues. They brought the boy to the disciples who tried and failed to remove the evil spirit. Now, why did the disciples think that they could cast out demons? This is interesting. The reason is when Jesus appointed them as his apostles, he gave them that ability and authority. Jesus actually gave them the ability to cast out demons. A lot of people think that when Jesus picked his apostles, what he did is he kind of walked around the countryside and he spotted somebody under a tree and he said, you, I want you to come be my apostle. That's not how it worked. Yes, he called disciples that way. And yes, we have recorded the stories of how he in particular called the disciples that ended up being apostles that way. But in that moment, he was not calling them to be an apostle. He was calling lots of people to be his disciples and saying, come and follow me. And many did. And then in Mark chapter three, Jesus, he goes up on a mountain. He calls to him the ones that he wanted. And he says this in verse 14. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. So they had this authority. This is something they were commissioned by Jesus to do. And this man brings his son to them. They tried to do what they have done before and it didn't work. And so the religious teachers, the scribes, were arguing with them. And here's what I think was going on. The scribes were probably saying, hey, these guys can't do what they claim to be able to do. And we have a problem here because if someone claims they can do something and then they can't follow through on it, one of two things is true. Either they were lying and they didn't have that ability or they messed up. They did something wrong. They didn't do it the right way. And probably what was happening here is the scribes who we know from other instances were actively working to discredit Jesus and the disciples. They were probably telling the people, see, they can't do what they claim to be able to do. You shouldn't follow them. They can't help you. And the disciples are over here going, can too. And the scribes are going, cannot. And this just went back and forth for a while until Jesus came down and interrupted them. So Jesus comes down, he confronts them. And then he says in verse 19, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now we don't know for certain If when Jesus is talking to them, we don't know if that them refers to the disciples or the crowd or the scribes or what exactly, but this word for people here is the word for generation. You faithless generation. So what I think this is, is a general cry of frustration where Jesus is just sort of letting out his his anger a little bit at just the general situation of all these people, maybe especially the disciples, for their lack of faith. You faithless people. They didn't have any faith. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. Now, this is confirmation. This is not just some medical condition. When the demon saw Jesus, it reacted at the sight of Jesus. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Three little words, so important. If you can. I'm just being honest here. I'm just being brutally honest, Jesus. I'm not sure if you can do this. Your disciples tried and they couldn't. Why would it be any different for you? supposedly they had this ability. 
I'm just being honest here, Jesus. I'm not really sure if I fully believe in this. If you can, help us. Help us if you can. How many of you have had an if you can moment? I have. If you can. It's not very trusting. It's not very believing. Jesus has an absolutely incredible response. He says, what do you mean if I can? This makes me think of a, of a dad who's in the car driving and the kids are in the backseat misbehaving. He goes, don't make me come back there. That's the kind of tone that I feel like, and that's probably not what he was actually doing, but just when I read this, like, what do you, excuse me? What do you mean if I, I can, you know? Jesus is not rebuking the man here. This is not a, a condemnation. This is a dialogue. He's challenging him. He wants him to grow. What do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. Now, that's very interesting to me. Anything is possible if a person believes, like anything, anything? Like anything I want, like anything I want to happen, if I just believe enough, you know, if there will be miracles if you believe, it's just gonna, it's just gonna happen. What are, how are we to take this? How are we gonna to look at this here? Is there some kind of a, of a, a faith score, a faithometer, that if we score a certain quota on the faithometer, like if I get a seventy-five, God's gonna do what I'm asking, but if I get a seventy-four, He doesn't. Is that how it works? There's a faith quota that I have to meet and, and live up to. That's how a lot of people think. That's how a lot of pastors preach and teach. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if that doesn't happen in your life, it's because you didn't have enough faith. That issue that you're dealing with right now, if you had enough faith, that miracle would have happened. If you had enough faith, you would have gotten that promotion. If you had enough faith and didn't doubt at all, you would get what you want. That's how a lot of people think. Here's the problem with the faith score approach. It leads to two negative ways of thinking, manipulation and guilt. Manipulation, because it makes us think, if I can get to the point where I have enough faith, if I can trust blindly enough, if I can eliminate all the doubts, if I can just concentrate really hard on that faith, then I can manipulate God into getting what I want. Here's how it leads to guilt. When we don't get what we want, we think, I didn't have enough faith. I must have doubted. That's why I didn't get that promotion. That's why my loved one didn't recover. That's why my marriage isn't getting any better because I didn't have enough faith. And I think that if God were to come down and interact with us about this belief, I think it would be like those insurance commercials where you've got somebody that says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So how does it work? Is there a faith quota? Look closely at what Jesus says here. Anything is what? Possible. Anything is possible if a person believes. Not anything you want will happen if you believe enough. Anything is possible if a person believes. There's this fascinating passage in the book of James where James is talking about people who are asking God for things or not asking God for things. And he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do actually ask, you do so with the wrong motives. And what that means is this. There are good things that God is willing to do in our lives that he refrains from doing either because we didn't ask him or because we asked with the wrong motives. It's not a faith score matter. Part of it is just, is God willing Are we asking with the right motives? Is my will aligning with God's will? Maybe I'm asking for something and I think it's the best thing in the world and God says, no, actually, that's not the best thing for you right now. Sometimes we ask with the wrong motives and we don't even realize it. There are good things that God is willing to do and refrains from doing according to James because we didn't ask or we asked 
wrongly. We ask for the wrong motives. In other places, Jesus is talking about how God does not give us bad gifts. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a stone? Or rather, asks for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, would give him a snake. If you don't give bad gifts to your children, do you think your heavenly father gives bad gifts? No. But sometimes we ask for bad gifts and we don't even, we don't even know it. All of this now ties back into this man. I'm going to show you how. It ties back into the disciples and how they cannot heal this boy. This man didn't say, I believe you can heal if you are willing. He said, help if you can. And Jesus then counters him by saying, anything is possible if you believe. And that cuts right to the heart of this issue. Because there's a part of this man that wants to believe. But there's a part of this man that doubts. He believes, but he doesn't believe. He sort of trusts, but not fully. fully. And the emotion is welling up within him at this point. Because maybe, just maybe, there is something to this man. Maybe when he says anything is possible, maybe he really means it. Maybe he really can heal my child. And so in the midst of all of this, not sure what to believe, here is what he says in the most honest and raw way possible. I do believe, but help my unbelief. It sounds like a contradiction. I do believe, but help my unbelief. How can this man say this? How many of you have been there before? I do believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't fully. I trust you, Jesus, but I'm not sure if I can trust you all the way. I've prayed that prayer before. I've wrestled with that before. Doubts about God and doubting God. We talked about that last week. And there's something very important for us to see here. There is an incredible moment of growth that happens right here. It, it's, it happens in an instant. It's so quick. And I just want you to kind of feel the tension of this moment because here is this man. He is in anguish. The pain of watching his child grow up this way. We talked about that, what that looks like. The knowledge that this may be the only chance to save his boy. The confusion that he is facing right here. The doubt over what to believe. Can Jesus heal him? Will Jesus heal him? His disciples couldn't. Why would this be any different? And in this moment, there is a movement that happens. There is a shift of perspective that happens that is absolutely critical for us to understand, but it's so subtle it's easy to miss. In fact, it just happens in an instant, like that. There's an important step in personal growth that he goes through, and and this is is what it is. I want to illustrate it for you. This is what needs to happen. For those of you that are struggling today with doubts, this is what needs to happen to start to go from doubt to faith. I'm going to use my super cool graphics again. Here's doubt. Here's faith. We want to go from doubt to faith. Doubt says if. I'm not sure if you are able. I'm not sure if you are capable. I'm not sure if you are present. I'm not sure if you can. Faith says help. Doubt says if, faith says help. I believe, but I'm also struggling with my unbelief. Help me. Not help, and this is critical, critical, not help my son get better, not help my marriage get better, not help my kids come back home, not help my loved one who's sick, not help that situation, help me, help me get better, help me grow through this, help my faith, help my unbelief. Do you see that shift that happens there? We go from if you can help my boy to help me have faith, help me believe. It's a different way of thinking. And here's what's going on here. It's, it's really simple. The journey from doubt to faith is a journey 
from if to help. The journey from doubt to faith is a journey from if to help. This man took the first step on that journey from doubt to faith because he switched his thinking from if you can to God, would you help me? And this is so, so critical for us to understand because Jesus, Jesus did not rebuke the man for having some doubts. He challenged him on it. He confronted him on it. He rebuked the generation. He rebuked the disciples in some cases. But here, he didn't rebuke this man for having some doubts. He rewarded him for having some faith. And think about that. He rewarded this man for having some faith. He was still divided. That's amazing to me. Aren't you thankful that's the kind of God that we serve? He didn't rebuke this man for having some doubts because sometimes I have doubts. And he rewarded the man for having some faith. James chapter one says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Now, should we strive to get to a place where we don't doubt anymore? Absolutely. Are we ever going to reach that point in this lifetime? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to hit a point where we say, I've arrived, I don't doubt anymore. It just doesn't happen. But absolutely, when we have those opportunities for our faith to be tested, the goal of that is not for whatever we want to take place. The goal of that is so that our faith can grow. And so what God is looking for from you today, if you're struggling with doubt, is not perfect faith, it's growing faith. Growing faith. Now, I want to bring this full circle, and I hope this is going to kind of tie everything back together. Why couldn't the disciples heal the boy? Why couldn't they do it? They did it before. Why couldn't they heal before? Why did Jesus say, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? And the disciples, by the way, they wanted to know this too. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. We cast out only by prayer. And when I read that, I think to myself, wait a minute, do you mean there's a kind of demon that can be cast out without prayer? And evidently there is. And so here's what's happening here. The disciples have become so used to just being able to cast out demons on their own power, which really, to be honest, was just power on loan from Jesus Christ. Get this, they didn't even stop to pray. And I think that Jesus' way of putting this, I wouldn't go so far as to saying it's passive-aggressive, but I think that it was incredibly convicting to these men. Jesus didn't say, you didn't stop to pray. He said, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. By that, we can infer none of them prayed. None of them sought God. None of them even thought to say, you know what, this isn't working. Maybe we should pray about this. Maybe we should trust in God instead of ourselves. Maybe we have tried to start doing this on our own strength and our own power, and we haven't been relying on God. I think this is incredibly convicting for them. It's like if you were in a building, you were trying to go outside through one of those glass doors, and you just kind of walk up to it, and you start pushing on it, you know, and it's not going. And you're kind of confused because you've opened doors before, so this should be fairly easy. And you're pushing on the door, you're pushing with all your might, and someone calmly and slowly walks over to you and just points below on the door and says, it says pull. And they go, here's your sign, you know? That's, I think, what Jesus is doing here. Uh, You should have prayed. You'd think it'd be obvious, but this one can be cast out only by prayer. Over in Matthew's account of this miracle here, we find out that Jesus said something else to the disciples as well. 
So Matthew, we know, wrote about this. Mark wrote about this. Luke wrote about this. We get the different stories and we get different perspectives and angles. And sometimes we find out about things that we didn't know from Mark. We learn them in Matthew. And Jesus says something else in Matthew that I, want, I have to share with you because it seems like it flies in the face of what I've been telling you this morning. We have to talk about it briefly. In Matthew chapter 17, another reason Jesus gives the disciples for this specific instance of why they couldn't heal the boy is right here. Here it is. Matthew 17, verse 20. You don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. Now, wait a minute. Didn't you just tell me that there's no faithometer, that there's no faith score, that it's not like I have to get a certain quota for it doesn't, that it doesn't really work that way exactly? Yes, let me explain. When Jesus says, you don't have enough faith, he goes on to use an expression. I tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Let me explain this because a lot of bad theology has come out of the mustard seed. Here's the thing with the mustard seed in the mountain. A lot, of, a lot of people have, and I saw this this week as I was researching and studying, a lot of people are going, well, I've never seen somebody move a mountain with faith, so I'm not going to believe. It's an expression. It's like us saying a needle in a haystack. The mustard seed was the smallest of the garden seeds, and when you plant it in the ground, it could grow up into a pretty good-sized plant. And so the mustard seed was an expression used not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture as well for the tiniest little thing. What Jesus is saying to them is not, you didn't have enough faith to reach the quota. You didn't have enough faith on the faith score. Here's what he's really saying to them. You didn't even have as much faith as a tiny little mustard seed. If you had even the tiniest amount of faith, you could have moved a mountain. Again, an expression. Not to tell us that we ought to be going out there and moving mountains. It's an expression to say, if you had the tiniest bit of faith, it could have incredible power. In other words, you didn't really have any faith. The disciples were trying to go it alone. They didn't even bother to stop and pray and ask God for his intervention. The journey from doubt to faith is a journey from if to help. The disciples did not make the journey that day, but the man did. A couple of years ago, we brought home our little daughter, Adeline, home from the hospital as a newborn baby, and we were so excited because a year earlier, my wife and I had been pregnant with identical twins. And I'm not going to get into the story now. It's, it's very emotional for me, and we'll do that at another time. Uh, we, don't, we don't have enough time this morning, but sometime I'll share that story with you. And God did some amazing things through that. But we had, we had identical twin babies, and late in the second trimester, uh, we lost them, is what happened. And I'll share that story another time. One year later, our little daughter, Adeline, was born. We brought her home from the hospital. We were so excited because this was kind of our redemption baby in a way. She helped to sort of take away the pain of losing our, our babies the year before. We already had Jackson, so now we have four kids, you know, two in heaven, two on earth, and we have this little baby, and at only a few days old, like six or seven days old, she starts having incredible breathing problems, and she's gasping for air and struggling to breathe. Her eyes are wide open because she knows something is wrong. She can't even cry. She can't take the time to cry. She doesn't have the energy to cry. She's too busy just trying to get a little bit of oxygen into her lungs. So we took her to the emergency room and we spent the night there and she was poked and prodded and eventually they determined that she must have some kind of chest infection. They gave us some medicine. They sent us home. I went to work. My wife called me in tears because her breathing was not improving. It was, it was getting worse. So she took her to our pediatrician who monitored her for over an hour and, and finally our, the doctor who, who looked at her said, you know, this might be signs of sepsis. 
And if you don't have sepsis, sepsis is when you have an infection that causes a train reaction in the body and it triggers some organs to shut down and it can ultimately lead to death. So we rushed her to the hospital and we were there for several days as they inserted and poked and prodded and injected and did all these different things and when we first got there, they had a team of people waiting to work on her and, and they, they were working on her and she was screaming and flailing all over the place in between gasping for air and I actually had to help them because they couldn't get stuff in there. I had to pin her down on the table so they could work on her. And in that moment, I have to imagine it's something like what this man experienced. As my wife and I are pleading with God, help us. In those moments, if you've ever been in one of those types of situations, you often wrestle with your your deepest doubts and discouragement. You wrestle with unbelief. Do I really believe? And my mind went back to this chapter, to the verses that we studied today. And I remembered this man who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And as I was struggling with this and wrestling with this, I just prayed to God and I said, God, I know you can heal her. I know you can give wisdom to the doctors to reveal what's going on here, to solve whatever problems are happening here. Please don't take our child. Please let her live. I do believe, God. Help my unbelief. And then I, and I prayed one of the most difficult things you can possibly pray as a parent. If it's not your will, if you want her to go, then we will praise you and we will grow through that just as we did last year. And for the next several months, we wrestled with all sorts of health issues. She was hooked up to stuff in our home. We weren't sure how things were going to go. We were really concerned for the first year of her life. She went from being pretty good coming home from the hospital, like 70s percentile, to plummeting down to like 18% or something. Just really, really bad trajectory. All kinds of health issues, specialist checkups, things like that. But we kept praying, and praise God, he was willing, he kept healing her. And she needed to have some surgery, but for other things, she sort of grew out of problems. And Well, today, she's a very different girl. And she's grown up, and I just, I'm not going to, share stories about my life and my family all the time. And I'm not going to show you pictures and videos all the time of my family. There are lots of good illustrations out there, but you're still getting to know me. So I wanted to share with you some of this today because it, it's just my experience with this chapter. We are so thankful for that little girl and how far she has come. And uh, I think about the man in our story today, the man whose son was healed, who shifted from if to help. And what did Jesus do? He didn't rebuke the man because he had some doubts. He rewarded him because he had some faith. And how did he reward him? He healed his boy. Do you think that that man had a lot of faith in Jesus after that? I think he did. But it started with that shift from if you can to help me grow, help me believe, help my faith, God. And there's no guarantee that Jesus is just going to instantly do what you ask him to do. There's no faith quota where all of a sudden God's just going to do what you want him to do. But he does want your faith to grow. Our faith grew from this experience. Let's bow our heads in prayer now. Ask God to teach us. Lord, would you help us as we seek to grow in faith? Sometimes we really wrestle with our unbelief, God. 
And you allow us to go through those experiences so that with the testing of our faith, we develop endurance and we grow. So Lord, for those in this room who are struggling with doubt and discouragement and a lack of faith right now, God, my prayer for them is that you would help their faith, help their unbelief, help them to grow, help them to trust you. And maybe that's gonna be through doing something amazing in their life when they finally turn it over to you and stop saying, if you can, but start saying, Lord, help me believe. Help teach me through this process. How do you want me to grow through what I'm experiencing right now? And Lord, we will praise you for everything you do in our lives as you continue to grow our faith. We pray this in your son's name, amen.